Hello, listeners. Before diving into today's episode, I wanted to share a few ways you can go deeper with the ideas I talk about in this podcast and support my work. The first is my book, The Pathless Path, which many of you have probably already heard about, but if you haven't purchased it already, I really think you'll love it. The second is The Pathless Path Community, which I just opened up as a one-time pay-what-feels-right access fee. And in that group, you can meet hundreds of other people from around the world on unconventional paths like me. Finally, I'm working on a second book tentatively called Good Work, which is going to explore my deeper relationship with work and how that led to a lot of the transformations in my life. You can follow along in my newsletter, Pathless, which you can also find a link to that in the show notes if you want to learn more about that. Without further ado, let's dive into the show. Welcome to The Pathless Path. I'm Paul Millard, and in this podcast, we examine the invisible scripts that run our lives and dare to imagine new stories for work and life. Today, I'm talking with Johnny Miller. Uh, Welcome, Johnny, a really good friend I've gotten to know over the last four years. We are both in long-term leases now after wandering the globe for several years. Um, So excited to talk about the feelings behind that. Um, Our paths, share some notes. I'm pumped to dive more into uh, your path. I think it's such a cool thing to be able to do an interview like this with somebody you know, a friend. I almost think more people should do this with their friends, but Welcome to the Pathless Path podcast, Johnny. <laughs> Thank you, Paul. It's it's great to be here. And yeah, it does feel, for me at least, really good to be grounded in a, in a place I can call home for the first time in, in a long time. I thought a good question to start with would be, were you exceptionally curious as a child? <laughs> uh, good one. Um yeah. This is the question I, I, Johnny asks on his <laughs> podcast. So you know, no one's ever asked me that before. Um, yeah, I I do think I do think that I was, and I think to the point where it was almost annoying for like my parents and, and certainly teachers at school. I think I was always probably asking too many questions and trying to kind of like like why are we learning this? Like, what's the point of this? Um, and I really I spent a lot of time reading and I spent a lot of time looking at like the the Dorling Kindersley kind of encyclopedias with maps. And uh, I loved reading about stories of adventure and kind of National Geographic dreamt of, of travel and going on these, these big kind of adventures when I was young. Um, and I, I think some of it did kind of die down a bit when I was in high school. Um, and it's almost been a journey over the last 10 years to try and reclaim that in some ways. <clears throat> Hence the podcast. Yeah, <laughs> yeah you, you wrote a poem, or I think you titled a book of poems you published, Remember, Forget, Remember. I could be yeah. messing that up slightly, but it was such a powerful frame for me, which yeah. is that life is really just a process of uh, remembering things, forgetting them, and then remembering them again. Mm-hmm. Uh, so wh- what does that phrase mean to you? I think that my experience has been of whenever something comes through that feels like a kind of a, a powerful insight, it's usually something that I've, I've heard before, but then just forgotten. Um, and I think that that phrase applies to um, the cycles that 
Kelly and I go through in our relationship. It applies to things that I remember in terms of work. And usually it takes some kind of like, like pain or challenge or something to be like, oh yeah, this is why this thing was really important to me. And um, I think that's just the way that thing, the way that we go through life. And I, I guess it's it's almost like um, almost like a spiral. And I and I like to think that when we remember again, it's like a little bit more deeply. And um, and, and I think I've also been coming to appreciate the. Uh, the forgetting phase as well. It's easy to kind of beat yourself up and like, oh, but I, I thought I learned this before. But actually there is something about the, the remembering and the forgetting and then the, the remembering again, which feels powerful to me. What happened in high school? <laughs> uh, uh, <laughs> quite a lot. Um, so I went to a British private school um, it was very strict, I would say. There were lots of rules that I considered to be stupid. Um, we kind of wore ties and blazers and um, took ourselves a bit too seriously, I think. And it, it was just, it was a very strict and rigid environment that um, was, you know, very geared and optimized for getting you into like a fancy university, Cambridge or Oxford, in my case. And, um, yeah, I, I think I, I struggled to I struggled to like make friends honestly and to connect and I got good grades but I wasn't really happy um, and and I left just not knowing what the hell I wanted to do but only just with the certainty of I didn't want to go on the path <clears throat> the default path that a lot of my friends were heading towards to become you know getting jobs as accountants or, or lawyers or things like that I, I'd met people who were older than me. And they didn't seem fulfilled or happy. In fact, many of them f- just seemed a bit dead on the inside. And I was like, I don't, I don't want that. There has to be, there has to be more to life. And, and I think I, I watched a lot of the do lectures and kind of found stories of people, I guess, who were on, on the pathless path of sorts and had found a way to, to make it work. And so I almost kind of clung to these, these stories and these narratives of like, there must be another path that just isn't, isn't clear and, and I'm not being presented from the kind of standard job fairs that you that you go to where you know you, you really have like four options you can be a, a lawyer a doctor an accountant um that and that's about it or a management consultant did you go into college with this mindset i mean that must have been pretty difficult i i almost didn't go to college or university as we say um i i had the real good fortune of doing we call it a gap year like a year out after school and that was was probably one of the best years of my life. Um, I spent eleven months traveling around Australia, Southeast Asia, um, parts of Indonesia, and it really just like opened my lens and and world to you up to things that I I'd thought kind of were possible, um, but never really believed in some ways. And so it was actually my uncle who kind of convinced me to go and to give it a shot. And to say, you know, at least like try it and see how you get on. And um, I think I went in with the mindset of like, of knowing what the opportunity cost was of this like amazing real world learning experience that I just come from. And went into the first year with this kind of desire to make the most of it, like jo- joining as lots of the groups, kind of studying philosophy instead of economics, which I'd applied to. Um, and yeah, I think I was a little bit also weird in that, 
but I tended to connect with other people who'd taken years out and we'd share our travel stories and, and things like that. Yeah, what's the, what were some of those experiences that opened your imagination during that trip? I think, um, well, firstly, I read Rolf Potts' book, Vagabonding, um, and I had that with me. That was kind of my Bible for when I was traveling. And I, I fell in love with travel, with travel writing, and specifically learning to surf, I think, was like a real catalyst for me in the sense of I never really committed myself to any sport. I was generally good at sports, but I just did it for a while and then gave up and did something else once I reached a plateau. But something about surfing was a way that I could connect with the ocean, connect with nature. Um, and the, the process of going into bigger and bigger waves and kind of building my confidence in that arena, I think, gave me confidence in other areas as well. And it was also an excuse to go to like remote islands in Indonesia. I went to an island called Nias, where, where you know, no travelers would go, but there were these amazing world-class waves there. And so I ended up going to a lot of places that were kind of off the traditional tourist path. Um, and I think that helped to just open me up to different ways of being, different ways of living, um, seeing a landing in um, Bangkok for the first time. And I'm sure, as you know, like the first time that you go to Southeast Asia, it's like, whoa. <laughs> it's like there is a very different way that you can orient yourself on this, on this world. And it just questioned a lot of assumptions that I, I think I had. Yeah, leaving, leaving uh, the US for me, it, I didn't do it until I was 30, but I think going to Asia okay. it is, so, is different enough that it disconnects your default scripts that run in your head. And you end up like... It, it shatters them. <laughs> yeah, and it, yeah, you end up, end up scriptless. And you're basically just like wandering mm -hmm. around doing stuff, but you're not mapping it to anything, any idea or story of what you're supposed to be doing. Mm. Um, and there's really no coming back from that, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, completely. Um, it really, I, I mean, I, I felt like that year in particular just changed me in so many ways. And I had the travel bug for many years after and kind of continued to seek out interesting places and start a travel magazine at university when I got back um, and then ultimately start a, a travel startup with two equally obsessed uh, travel friends. And you saw Rolf Potts speak in uh, London, I believe. Uh, yeah, I think you told me about this and it was a powerful moment for you. Yeah, yeah. And I actually, um, I interviewed him for Maptia as well, which was like, it was one of the highlights of my startup career was getting to, getting to interview this, this real hero of mine who um, I, I just really appreciated his perspectives and his like deeply thoughtful lens on, on everything, not just travel. I think for him, like travel is, is a lens to explore what it means to live a good life. Um, and yeah, I think his philosophies have stayed with me in many ways. Yeah, what, what was it like connecting with somebody like that that i mean i think the internet has been great for this kind of like flattening people and realizing oh mm -hmm. i'm just like someone like ralph he's not like this special person he's an incredible writer right um mm -hmm. wrote an incredible book but um in some sense like we're all kind of marching to a similar beat which just doesn't happen to be the default story mm. yeah totally um i i <laughs> 
I think in the case of Rolf, I did put him on on the pedestal to some degree. <laughs> yeah. uh, but it was it was great to kind of, uh, I guess, very validating that the questions that I asked in this interview, which was about his relationship with with Paris, um, were really well received. And, and I think that my, in some ways, my reflections allowed him to phrase his experiences in a slightly new way. And that that in itself was was really powerful. And then. And later on, connecting with um, a guy called Al Humphreys, who I'd also idolized as a kid. He's done all these amazing adventures and going on like a, a micro adventure with him <clears throat> outside of London and just realizing that like he really was like an average guy in many ways and actually quite shy and introverted, which kind of surprised me. Um, and we went on to become good friends afterwards. And I think that was a moment where I was like, wow, these people that I've like, I've read their books, I've you know, become um, so inspired by their writing and they're, they're just humans. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I think that was, that was also really powerful for me. Yeah, it's been a learning experience for me too. I think we met about four years ago, I think uh -huh. June 2018 at World Domination Summit. And I remember meeting you and like hearing some of the cliff notes of things you've done. And I was like, oh, wow, this, this person has way more than me figured out. Um, he's like worked remotely, he's traveled. I was like just becoming a digital nomad and I had no idea what I was doing. Um, and I realized after like getting to know you as well, it's like, oh, there are certain people who, for which the default path doesn't quite work. And all they want is to find other people that share the questions they mm -hmm. have mm -hmm. about life. And once you mm -hmm. meet those people, it's such a powerful connection, um, mm. which is a long way of asking uh, the second, the day after you met me, why did you mm. walk up and hand me the three marriages from David White? Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, great question. Um, I think there's a couple of things here. One of them is that people had gifted me books um, in my 20s that I really appreciated. And there's something about receiving a book from a friend that A, makes you want to read it more, and B, kind of adds another layer of depth to it. And um, that book just really, really impacted me. And I'd been um, just obsessed with, with David White for a while. And I'm sure you can empathize of like, if you find someone's work that you're just like, this is so good. When you meet someone who is asking similar questions and is on a similar kind of path, you're like, like, you're like, here, like, take this. <laughs> like, this is, there's so much, there's so much wisdom here. Um, yeah. And, and it was, and, and the second piece is, I think, um, part of my like path as path journey has been learning to trust my intuition a bit more. And, just like acting on those impulses and I think that was a, that was a good example of like a really clear like impulse of like I don't know why but I think you should you should just have this like I'm just going to give you this <laughs> um and I'm glad I did because it definitely uh led to some cool things yeah Dave, David White is so powerful we could probably go a couple hours just on his writing but he's he's the first person I read and it's also the the place I found the phrase, the pathless path, which has ties to Buddhism and um, uh -huh. Taoism and 
things like that. But um, he writes, when you first discover the phrase, the pathless path, you are not fully supposed to know what it means. Um, But I write in my book, as soon as as I saw this phrase, it meant everything. It Mm. sort of gave um, a phrase to something I had been experiencing in the body, but couldn't really articulate. Mm -hmm. It was the gap between... um, what people were asking me what I was up to and what I was trying to convey. Uh, So it was super powerful, but he was also just a transcendent voice that seemed to cut across all the nonsense of how we talk about work in modern culture, Mm -hmm. which is either around like hyper success or even like starting a startup or, or things like that. And really just getting back into like, the body even and it's like Mm -hmm. what's the lived experience of what we're dealing with in today's world not should it exist or shouldn't exist like this is what Uh is happening how do you actually orient your life around this um Mm -hmm. super powerful what what are some of the biggest um lessons you've taken from david i know you've actually spent some time with him as well Mm. yeah um well just to kind of echo that piece i think I think what the path is path meant to me was almost like this big permission slip in some ways of like many of us um, looking to kind of find like a raft of identity or security to grab onto. But the idea that the path is path is this almost kind of essential part of the process um, validated and, and normalized it for me. Um, and, and it's a beautiful kind of image to work with as well. Um, but in terms of the things that I took away from, from David's work, um, well, I mean, he inspired me to write poetry is one. Um, I never cared for poetry at all until I, I came across his writing. It just kind of went way over my head. And something about listening to his voice, um, and in particular in, like, in, the, wake of, uh, in the wake of grief and kind of um, loss, his words were able to kind of point to and articulate something that I was feeling that I didn't really know how to express. Um, and spending, yeah, spending this week with him in Ireland um, and kind of being around him and just, just the, the way that he, the way that he speaks, not even the words that he does, but he has this way of like almost casting a spell with his words and with his language that is just so captivating. Um, and I think for me, he really embodied someone who has lived with, with so much depth and he's like dedicated his life to try, to try to point to these experiences which many of us have touched um, and, and he's able to do so. And, and the combination of kind of his work as a, um, as a, as a naturalist guide and, and the fact that um, he, he, he said that his writing appeals to both hemispheres like the left hemisphere and the right hemisphere i think that's something that i appreciate about it it's both specific and you can kind of grasp what he's saying and it's also beautiful and poetic and and this idea he speaks of like poetic attunement or the poetic imagination and it, and it is really a way of being in the world it's like a way of noticing beauty and appreciating the depth of things that's i think he he like opened the door for me for that and then inspired the the short poetry book that i wrote um later that year as well um yeah and 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 i think also his book consolations 
um, particularly the words around courage and friendship, um, really hit home for me in a big way. And it's just, I mean, that's a good example of something that I will remember, forget and remember. And, and rereading those, those words in that book on a regular basis, it's like, oh yeah, like, that's important. <laughs> Yeah, his his thing on friendship is uh so good. I'll I'll definitely link to that. It's uh I've gotten such powerful insights from all his writing. Yeah. Um his audiobooks, like I just finished Crossing the Unknown Sea and uh-huh. it's it seems that many people who are able to channel truth go through some sort of traumatic uh, or painful experience. David had experiences where he almost died uh, yeah. multiple times in the Galapagos. Um, and he's able to pair that with like a very modern um, understanding of the world, right? I think this is what makes him so powerful is he can actually articulate what it's like to like work in the corporate world, for example. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Whereas like sometimes like a lot of like woo writing it's more of like an escape. It's like, okay, once you've escaped reality, you can experience this. But he's like, well, we do live in a world. Here's uh, what I'm experiencing. Also, I almost died uh, working as a naturalist. And here are some deeper intuitive um, reflections on the world you might want to think about. Mm. Uh, how How is that connected to some things you've experienced? I, I mean, I know you've gone through some uh, pretty hard times as well. Mm. Yeah, well, just to speak to the that piece briefly um i remember he uh, he was afraid to kind of go into the, the corporate world originally and he was also afraid to kind of um s- strike out as being a poet like he worked in the nonprofit world for a while and it took a great deal of courage for him to like announce his identity as a poet to the world and i think it was someone from boeing who walked up to him at the end of a, of a talk and said like we need to hire you and he was like why why do you need to hire me and he was like and this guy from Boeing said, because we don't have the language sufficient to describe the territory that we're exploring. Um, and that was what kind of convinced him to like, okay, like maybe I'll try speaking to companies and businesses. Um, and, and I think that, that his like poetic lens is actually really needed in the corporate work environments that do have a tendency to be more sterile. But in terms of how how his how his writing and work resonated with with my experience um yeah i i think that when i in in the months and years after losing my my ex-fiance sophie um i'd never really experienced hardship or intensely painful emotions and there's something about his writing one of the themes is this idea of kind of of surrender and this idea of, of like le- leaning into the into the challenges, and again, it was like a it was like a permission slip, and in some ways a roadmap of like here's how to navigate this this really challenging terrain that I, I didn't know I was lost, like I didn't really have people to talk to or to turn to, and and he kind of provided a like a a roadmap for this path this path of navigating grief. Um, and many of his words and experiences were both comforting and also um, kind of inspired me to not only go deep into the feelings, but to to write about it and to you know write write some poems that came from that place. 
Yeah, and we'll dive into that. We'll probably just good to dive into that now. So you you lost your former partner, which I mean, you gave an amazing talk about this. I I will definitely link up to this as well on grief, um, which is was a TED talk uh, recorded in Bali. I think people should definitely listen to this. Um, it was amazing, really powerful for me. But you you also talk about, I mean, that year after you sort of went in a deep exploration of like how to heal, and yeah. uh, I encourage you to write about this recently. Sort of, you went to all these retreats, you did different coaching ment- um, modalities, you did different uh, medical treatments, uh, psychedelics, uh, psychotechnologies, uh, the whole gamut. Um, what sort of told you that was what you had to do? Uh, um, I think there's, there's probably two things that were at play here. The first was, uh, was fear, um, in that I'd met kind of in the same way of like seeing older people who were in jobs that I really didn't want. I'd seen people who were kind of in their forties and fifties who had lost someone close to them and they hadn't, for whatever reason, they hadn't been able to feel the grief and it had left them as almost these like, these like husks of humans, these almost like slightly not quite real, bitter people. Um, And I think I realized my own tendency to not really feel my own emotions. I mean, like I said, I went to like a British boarding school um, and I wasn't particularly in touch with with my feelings or my my emotions. So I was like, I I don't want to end up like that. (laughs) And and so I started kind of exploring like what might be some... um, like some things to try that would give myself the space and maybe the tools and the and the communities to to really feel into this and to feel held. And initially, that was a uh, there was a, a vipassana meditation retreat that was happening um, very close by. So that that was just like I was like, screw it, like let's just let's try this. Um, I've got nothing to lose. Um, and that then I, I was then invited to join a, a plant medicine ayahuasca ceremony in in England as well and that was incredibly powerful and I think at some point the the fuel switched from being kind of I'm afraid that if I don't heal this or feel this then I'll end up like a broken in some way to wow this is incredibly fascinating and the whole new worlds are opening up to me that I didn't even realize existed in the same way that when I went traveling it was that experience of like, wow, there is so much here. There's so much to learn. Um, and I think I applied that same kind of adventurous curiosity to, um, to these different modalities, whether it was meditation, whether it was breath work, whether it was free diving um, and some of the different retreats that I've been on. And yeah, and so I, as the years kind of progressed, I just became more and more interested in these in these skills and these practices and these spaces, which were so meaningful to me, like like really, um, some of the most beautiful and meaningful experiences in my life have happened in these kinds of containers, where it feels like there is permission for the full spectrum of me, the full spectrum of 
my humanity of, of other people's humanity and emotions to be there and to be present and witnessing and hearing these stories from people it was it's it just really powerful and not something that i'd experienced before and so then going back to <clears throat> um going back to like the the old world it it felt like shallow somehow and and like wanting to bring that depth into my everyday life you know um so i think that was certainly the driving force and i think this is something that connects us we both have sort of discovered different relationships with showing up in the world different states of being where we're sort of like frustrated we're like don't you see how exciting this is? Don't you see the possibilities? Um, yeah, yeah. And I think you've actually been a really great and inspiring role model for me for like really injecting like what does a positive vision uh, look like? Um, mm. I think when we first spent extended time together, I spent six weeks with you in Bali in early 2019. Mm -hmm. And you really were practicing and experiencing a lightness, a playfulness. It was like, oh, that that's something different. That's exciting. Whereas I mm -hmm. think I was still going through my transition of like being against my previous path. Um, and really mm -hmm. my whole journey has been learning to let that evaporate mm -hmm. uh, rather than um, figuring out something that is against that, which I think is a big failure mode in a lot of people who do take uh, different paths is they mm -hmm. are permanently against their old old path or old self rather than like I don't know you'll you'll probably come up with better words than that I'm using here but like oh the one I think I picked up from you is just like softening into who mm. you, who you are and who you're meant to be mm. yeah I I so agree and I as you're talking I was just reminded of um, the conversation we had on my podcast where you shared how as you were writing your book, like you had this moment where there was this kind of like real epiphany, I guess, along the way. And, and I, I guess I've noticed in you like more lightness and like more playfulness uh, since then, which is really cool to see. And, and I think for me, that has been part of the path too. It's like, I begun this also taking myself really seriously and, um, you know, not really being in touch with that playful, creative, like mischievous part of me. And I think that in the last year or so, um, that is really coming alive more in, in a big way. And that I like, I love that. And I love to see it in other people as well. Um, <laughs> yeah. It's, so I saw you recently celebrated your birthday and there's a video of you and your now um, spouse, Kelly, uh, dancing in the morning. And like, <laughs> I see this and I love it. I'm like, that is Johnny. I love it. Um, it still scares me to like see that. And I, I think a lot yeah. of people are like yeah. this. Uh, when yep. you see people doing silly things or fun things or just like really leaning into our human weirdness, do, does yeah. it scare you sometimes seeing other people do those things? And does that drive you yeah. to do these things? Yeah, I, I think it brings up a, a bunch of things. Um, I remember when I was in Nepal, uh, the, about to go on a, a 10 day vision quest with my friend Jay, our, our mutual friend Jay. And there were these kids playing in the field. And they were playing with such like reckless abandon, such like lack of inhibition that it, it brought me to tears. And I remember 
I was like feeling the grief for my own, my own like a repressed playfulness because I, I knew it was in me, but I just didn't feel capable of like playing to that, to that same extent. And um, I think for me being part of community and having friends for whom that's kind of the norm is a big part of it. Um, going, you know, things like the, the dances that happen in Bali. Um, I think a large part of what breathwork has given me is almost like an acceptance of all types of experiences. Like I, I've seen and also just been through some pretty crazy things that now like the idea of dancing in a park, it's like, like, yeah, like why not? <laughs> like, that's like totally normal. Um, and yeah, I, I mean, I, I think when I go back to, I imagine if I, if I went back to London and was kind of in the environment with my, my old friends, there would still be that kind of inhibition would come back online. But it's almost like I'm gathering people around me that have even less inhibitions than I do. And it's like that's permission to then, um, you know, see like, where's my edge? Like what feels a little bit uncomfortable, but what also feels fun and just exploring that. And, and Boulder is actually a really great place for that because I think there's a, a beautiful collection of super weird people. <laughs> I actually feel pretty normal in some contexts. <laughs> Yeah, or like straight laced is maybe a better word. <laughs> you seem, you seem sort of drawn to that edge. Um, I, I approach a lot of this stuff with the mindset of like, okay, I'm gonna let Johnny experiment with this for two years and then get like the eighty twenty <laughs> of how to onboard onto this. <laughs> I'm my edge is like a little further back from your edge. Um, what draws you to that edge? I think it probably comes back to curiosity slash a fear of being boring. Um, and, and, and I think for me, like one of the values that I think I've held kind of close to me over the years has been this idea of like courage and courageous curiosity. And so if I notice something that I'm afraid of, there is some part of me that's like, I want to go into that. I don't know where that comes from. It's just something that I've, I've gen generally always had. Um, and, and honestly, it's like, as the, the more that I've been on this like weird path and been doing these weird things, the more lightness and freedom and sense of like embodiment that I have. And it's, I, I wouldn't want to go back. <laughs> Like the, there's so much more, uh, less rigidity and more aliveness in, in, in like everything, like whether it's like the way Kelly and I like have breakfast in the mornings to like the friends that I, it just, it really does impact everything. Um, and so there is this like desire to kind of keep exploring those, those edges. Um, and yeah, I, I mean, Austin is also, I think like assist the place to, to boulder in in many regards if like there's a lot of um you know people explore exploring tantra and all of these different things that feel quite edgy to the the average person yeah breath work is a huge thing here now in austin and uh. i think is increasingly powerful i think i actually the only time i've done breath work was with you and uh -huh. i think i am very I am like normie adjacent when it comes to like this kind of stuff. And 
I think I deeply trust you because I've seen you up close and you put so much care into how you introduce this stuff to other people, which, I mean, the whole nature of exploring edges, the kind of people that are drawn to exploring the edges sort of, I think, sometimes lack a groundedness, uh, both to like the broader reality. And this is probably what like draws me to David White too, because the sense of groundedness Mm-hmm. with the exploration of the edges like wh- what like how do you think about these things because i do sense you have a sort of guiding philosophy and groundedness which is like really good at like rejecting the 20 percent that is like this is probably bullshit <laughs> <laughs> and but rooting it in um yeah a grounded curiosity i might call it mm. yeah great question I think that's both because I, I, coming from like the startup world and being quite heady for a lot of my life, I have that mm. part of me that is always pretty skeptical of things which, you know, haven't really been studied or just people making kind of wild claims without backing it up in, in some kind of way. And I think I've been drawn to, and also just been lucky enough to connect with, with teachers and mentors who I consider to be both very grounded. And, and I think in the context of breathwork specifically, um, something I really respect about Ed, who is my teacher in Bali. Ed Dangerfield. Yeah, Ed Dangerfield is his like deep knowledge of the nervous system and understanding of polyvagal theory and his kind of conscientiousness around creating safety and creating a safe container to go into some of these things. And he, he's actually quite out, outspoken against a lot of the ways in which breathwork, for example, is, pra- is practiced, where there might be 200 people in a room with like two facilitators and they pump music and they, yeah. they blast people through their, what's that, it's like the window of tolerance. And it's actually, it's actually unsafe. Like there's a lot of stuff that happens that I consider to be not, at the very least, like not helpful or not conducive to any kind of growth or healing. Um, and I think it is a balance. It's like, on the one hand, there are these people who like, you know, Burning Man is probably a good example where like real edges are pushed. Um, and I think that is great. And there does need to be that level of groundedness as well. Um, so yeah, it's, it's definitely a balance. What, what originally got you into breathwork? Uh, freediving. I was um, doing a freediving training in Bali and the guy who was teaching me he said he'd been trained in this um, this breathwork thing and he put on a playlist for 90 minutes, I think it was. And about halfway through, I had an experience that was as powerful and, and meaningful as anything I'd experienced on, on psychedelics. And I actually connected with Sophie in a really meaningful way and I was kind of crying and I came out of it and I was like, whoa, what, what just happened? Like, what was that? <laughs> I was just breathing. I went into it with this very like naive kind of view, I guess. Like, oh, it's just the breath. Um, and then meeting Ed when he first landed in Bali, we just <clears throat> happened to meet in the sauna, I think. And I was like, oh, this guy seems like he really knows what he's talking about. He seems really interesting. Um, and so becoming friends with Ed and then spending more time with him, doing a journey with him and realizing, realizing how much there was there and how much... Um, depth there was to the way that he has he, he essentially maps breathing patterns onto um 
repressed emotions or what he calls like incomplete reflexes. And through the course of a journey, um, as the breath moves to different places, different repressed emotions or experiences tend to surface. And seeing him do a translation, like seeing him breathe someone else and like what he was seeing and, and the types of um in like the types of guesses that he could infer from the way someone was breathing about how they were living their life was incredible and, and how they turned out to be true and like things that might have happened to them when they were younger and attachment strategies and the types of relationships that would be likely to have. It's like, wow, you can understand all of this from the way someone's breathing. Like it's it's incredible. Um and so there was, yeah, like a real respect for the the craft that he has and his his teachers as well, um, it, like it comes from a lineage, um, and I, I still continue to be fascinated by that. Yeah, what is what is that specific lineage? Maybe give some people some definitions or frameworks for like what is breathwork. I what I've seen in Austin yeah. is like there's a lot of stuff people are calling breathwork. Um, yeah, how do you think about that? Yeah, it's it's annoying that breathwork is such like a like a suitcase word like it means so many things um there's there's two main kinds one is like pranayama which just means like consciously controlling the breath so wim hof or um breathing exercises that you might do in a yoga class for example where you're doing a certain breathing rhythm to just change your state in some way maybe find more calm or maybe get energized and then there's another category where you're accessing more of the subconscious mind um, and the the lineage that Ed comes from is known as conscious connected breathing, which comes from a guy called Leonard Orr back in the day. And it's basically like a full inhale, then a relaxed exhale. And this is done for anywhere between 45 minutes to, to sometimes up to two hours to music. And it creates a, a journey. And when someone loops their breath in this way, it basically can bring up more subconscious material and people can have insights or um, all the kind of the whole full spectrum of different experiences are, are possible um, and, and so the main difference is like you're not really controlling the breath in this way you're just breathing in a certain way and then like letting go of doing it and it just kind of does itself what do you think's happening there like what uh, i've had some powerful experiences my wife angie has had even more powerful experiences i think she has a very vivid uh, yeah image like she can conjure up colorful vivid images in her brain i don't have this i still need to figure out what the different ways of imagining things are but yeah uh, wh what is happening there i know she was able to process some stuff um that was really hard um uh, that she had dealt with and it kind of just dissolved and disappeared which i think is what probably made you so excited about this like it's sort yeah. of just like you can re literally just resolve stuff which is so uh -huh. different than like okay meet yeah. with a therapist indefinitely yeah yeah so i think there is a huge difference between talking about something versus going into the body and um completing the experience that didn't get to be completed at some time in our past in terms of what do I think is actually happening, um, the short answer is, is we don't yet fully know. There's, there's uh, some really interesting research projects happening in Bali with Breath Lab Bali where they're, um, they've got brain scanners and they've got like a bunch of different equipment to try and 
measure the changes in our endocrine system in terms of brain waves, like to find out what, what is actually happening. Um, the loose hypothesis is that by breathing in this way, um, it creates pretty profound shifts in blood chemistry, which then creates an altered state of consciousness, which is kind of like a trance. And in this state, these buffered memories are, are able, assuming there's kind of sufficient safety, these buffered memories then kind of rise to the surface. And uh, to give an example, I, I did a journey with someone who had had a near-death drowning experience and his body made all the same movements and did the same things as if he was actually drowning. Um, and, you know, I've, I've witnessed women who've been victims of sexual assault and um, you know, the full spectrum of experiences where something happened to us, them, when they were younger, but it wasn't safe to react in the way that the body wanted to react. And so that was essentially stored for later. And in these journeys, it's a space in which these experiences can kind of come. Um, and a another example is sometimes people are able to breathe down into their, into their pelvis and down into their lower belly, which creates this like felt sense of safety which maybe they haven't had for their entire lives. And so they've been in this state of hypervigilance, um, tracking everything all the time and feeling afraid. And just by breathing into that space, there's this sense of like rootedness and groundedness, which obviously you know, really impacts the way someone shows up in their life. And this connects pretty deeply to, I mean, one of the most powerful books I've read is The Body Keeps the Score by Vessel uh -huh. uh, van der Kolk, I think. Um, uh -huh. And yeah, it was the first time I realized it's like, oh, you can't really figure out these things like intellectually, right? Uh -huh. There are certain experiences that are stored in the body and there are all these different techniques for sort of like unscrambling that and let you like finish out the, the, the moment you're like stuck on and orienting your whole life toward. Um, uh -huh. What effect did that book have on you? Yeah, I, th I think it... <clears throat> I think it mostly reinforced a lot of, I actually read it a little bit later, like once I kind of done this training and um, I fully agree with him. And I think it's such a, it's such a powerful message that whilst talking about things, I think in particularly parts work can be, can be helpful, which is, is like working with the different parts of ourselves. And that can be really effective for eliciting whatever the thing is, but in order for it to be fully resolved and like completed or like dissolved, like you said, like, like happened with Angie, something does need to be felt. Like there is some kind of emotion which needs to be welcomed back in and, and reintegrated. Um, and until it does, there will be some kind of tension, holding pattern, tendency towards reactivity in different ways. Um, and the body, like the body is incredibly smart. The nervous system is incredibly like efficient and clever in that it, it will find ways to try and recreate that experience. Uh, another great book is, is by a guy called Peter Levine, I'm Waking the Tiger, and he, he describes how one of the patients he worked with, she was creating the same situation in her life in different contexts to try and relive this experience that she, um, that she had had. And she finally got to complete that in a, in a session with him. And he created something called somatic experiencing, which is like, it's another way of, of getting to the same thing. I think breathwork does it without words. Somatic experiencing is more of a, like, they ask you questions. It's more kind of therapeutic. My personal experience doing breathwork uh, was actually not 
dealing with like some traumatic or painful experience a lot, I was just like laughing and super happy <laughs> the entire time. And I think it was yeah. a real big opening and shift for me in letting me lean into that more playful side we were talking about yeah. earlier. Yeah. Um, am I like an extreme weirdo or is like this common as well? <laughs> <laughs> no, that's that's also really common, and I think it's part of what makes it so delightful to like to do this work. Is sometimes that happens, and often the the deep like belly laughter will come on the other side of of some kind of sadness or like emotional release, and sometimes it just comes out of nowhere. And and I think like leaning into that um like the depths of that joy can be just as scary as leaning into like grief or or shame or whatever it is, because people can be afraid to like really fucking laugh like it's we we hold back in so many ways um and and i someone actually this guy sam sager who i think you know as well um he he was like like your laugh sounds different and and i think that i'd be curious <laughs> to hear recordings of my laugh like back when i was at school because it oh, is wow. different there's there's like a different and um, i don't know more freedom i guess in the diaphragm that's that's present yeah, I, I, I spent 10 years uh, working in worlds where people would tell me, uh, like, I literally had people tell me, like, you're showing too much expression in your face. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, it was me, like, being <laughs> annoying, right? I'm like, oh, God, this is bullshit. Um, <laughs> but, like, I learned to, like, tamp down that and become a certain yeah. type of actor or performer in a role. And I lost uh -huh. some of that playfulness and like I'm uh -huh. getting better but there's still a lot of uh, space to lean back more into that joy and playfulness it's uh. it's so hard as an adult like we've learned so many ways <laughs> that like you should be like you're taught over and over again yeah. as a kid no you can't do this don't do that you're you're embarrassing us like uh, and uh -huh. like all these little things you pick up over the years and some of them help you make more money and be successful. And then like you get to a point when you're like, oh yeah, I want to be more playful. How I have no idea how to get back to that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that, I think that's part of the challenge is where we're like socially rewarded for some of these like maladaptive strategies or these, you know, ways of repressed being where we might earn more money in the short term, but then we get to a point where we have even more money, but we're still not happy. And then there's like this unlearning process. Um, what I'm curious, like, what are some of the things that have helped you access that more? One, so one thing for me is I just love learning. So uh -huh. trying to tap back into the things I loved learning as a kid, uh, things uh -huh. like playing basketball, they enable me to go back um, to those like joyous childhood periods uh i started yeah. learning how to yo-yo again last year <laughs> um and that was something i like doing as a kid and like what i'm doing it's like fun i would like write um while i was writing my book i would write take a break yo-yo uh it's just like super fun um sometimes trying to like just post like i posted like some dance videos on like tiktok just for fun right mm -hmm. just like try posting it because it's it was uncomfortable and it was like, okay, if I can like put this out there, it's like, who cares? Um, learning how to DJ uh, earlier this okay. year, that was something I just like screwed around with and played around with um, in college. And it's like super fun to like reconnect with that. Um, 
And that's kind of like learning how to do things I like doing as a kid or doing those things again, biking, um, are portals for me to reaccess that energy and inject it back yeah. into my life. But yeah, yeah. it's uh, it's been a journey and so much was unlearning the scripts from what I did to be a successful person. And mm -hmm. it's so hard because so many of those things help me today, right? Mm -hmm. But it's in your body needing to learn. You don't need all of those things. It's like, okay, I, I know how to like structure ideas and synthesize information, but I don't need all the other stuff that went with that too. Um, mm. And by letting go of some of that other stuff, I'm not going to lose the skills. I'm not going to lose the ability to help people and do things. Um, mm. So yeah, it's constant uh, learning. What I love about that is the things that you've been learning, they don't really have like a directly practical application. Like I think it'd be quite easy for someone to like learn SEO or whatever it is that like is clearly going to benefit their business. But there's something almost rebellious about dedicating time, like, you know, like creative, productive time to something which doesn't have like a measurable outcome. And that feels like rebellious, at least to the scripts that we grew up with. Yeah, and that was a big unlock for me because on the work side, I do love playing with computers and like learning something like SEO is like weirdly fun for me or like <laughs> learning how to like use a mic and do audio editing and like do a podcast, yeah. put it out there. And surprisingly fun for me, which is like yeah. why I like this path. But it was still loosely connected to work um, and getting those things outside that are sort of like, okay, I'm going to like take DJ lessons in the middle of the day. And like, I'm not going to try to land a paid DJ gig. Like maybe there'd be a fun <laughs> challenge just to raise the stakes, but like, that's not yeah. the goal. Um, yep. So yeah, it's, uh, it's been cool. Would you have any other challenges for me? Challenges? Um, I just like lean it, lean more into the weird side of Austin. I think there's a lot of cool stuff there. Um, yeah. Try, maybe try in something like contact improv. That's something that Kelly and I think about doing, which is, um, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll get back to you on that. <laughs> awesome. So somebody was asking us to talk about just the feelings of uh, being on a pathless path. And I think this is what uh, has connected us because there are, there are so many feelings <laughs> being on a path like ours, which is basically like a perma-lostness, right? You're sort of always a bit lost. Um, mm -hmm. And I think this is why it makes it so important to have friends, but... So I think an interesting way to talk about this was, um, would be talk, talk to me about leaving uh, the startup. So quick background, you co-founded a company called Maptia, which uh, was basically kind of this media brand, beautiful storytelling around travel. Um, you co-founded it with a couple other people. You guys lived in a bunch of different cities and countries all around the world, um, did a startup incubator. Um, but ultimately, you kind of found yourself at the end of that, um, kind of seeking something beyond that. So maybe uh -huh. talk to us about that, and then we'll dive into kind of your solo journey as well. Um, yeah, I think it's a great question. Um, I remember the, the thing that actually led me to make the decision to leave 
was reading this quote by Annie Dillard, and she said, how we spend our days is in the end how we spend our lives. And I remember reading that, and despite being very uh, infatuated with the mission and the vision for the company Maptia, what I was actually doing on a daily basis was essentially a glorified email monkey. Like I was just writing emails to these photographers, and it was boring and and numbing and i'd been doing it for a long time and so quick excuse me quick interjection here while you catch catch your (laughs) breath um i found in i was reading your old medium essays this morning Uh um and you had one about like the recipes of growth marketing Uh (laughs) and i i clicked in the article like it wasn't very good and like like (laughs) It was interesting. It was like very Johnny Miller spin on like trying to make growth marketing interesting, but like there Uh wasn't like much depth there. And it was like, Uh oh, this is not Johnny's um, thing. Yeah. (laughs) You were not destined to be a growth marketer. That's that's funny. I guess you can't hide your old identities on the internet anymore. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I think that that says it all really. Um, I was feeling unfulfilled and unnourished and I wasn't, learning, growing, excited. We weren't making much money. There were a bunch of reasons why. Um, But still, the decision to leave and to essentially give up the identity of being a startup founder was very scary. And and I remember there being this this real void on the other side where I'd never had a a real job. I didn't know if I had any skills and I had no idea what I wanted to do. Um... And I was just kind of like lost, like completely lost without really any sense of where to go. I was fortunate in that a friend asked me to be a mentor for this, this thing in London called the Startup Tribe. And that was almost like, a, like, like, some, like him throwing me a rope when I was like adrift in the ocean. Um, and that then led to a new role as a teacher and, and something that I got a lot more fulf- fulfilled from. But... In terms of the actual, like, pathless path and the feelings associated, yeah, I, um, I was saying to Kelly recently that I think actually it's only been recently, kind of since becoming closer with you and, you know, the, the groups that we have and, and friends on Twitter that I actually feel less alone. I think there was still a good part of my journey where I really was, was on my own. Like, there were different people that I connected to, but there was definitely a feeling of loneliness or like lack of tribe present for a long time. And I think that I, I wish that I'd sought out to kind of create that tribe earlier on. That would have been incredibly helpful. Um, and yeah, I, like I've never, I've never had a, a kind of job on the default path because I've always been so afraid of it. <laughs> but I think some of the feelings have been I, I've, we, I think we've both explored the ideas of ambition in different ways. And I think I've, I've, my pendulum has swung different ways like throughout the past, sometimes where I'm you know, wanting to change the world and other times where I think ambition is terrible and that you shouldn't be ambitious at all. And for me, it, it has been a, like a crucible in some ways of trying to find out what is it that I care about. And, and maybe to come back to the Annie Dillard quote, of, of how do I actually want my days to be? I think that's kind of what a lot of it comes down to. It's like, what does a good life and what does a good day and a good week look like for me? 
and how can I structure or like create the conditions so that that is then possible? Yeah, when so I want to. I'm going to dive into this. I want I want to backtrack a little. Um, so after you you did a few things like um, the startup tribe. You were working at Escape the City as a mentor. You also took on a freelance project, which kind of like helped you sustain yourself and uh, uh, mm-hmm. keep exploring as a part time uh, digital marketer. Uh, maybe talk to me a little bit about this, how it gave you the space to explore, and then like your decision of finally deciding to let that go. Uh, yeah, good question. So I was working with a, a startup called Litographs for a while, and I was kind of applying some of the the skills that I'd learned in Maptia to helping grow this uh, literary t-shirt company. And I think I, I both really liked the people that I was working with, um, and it was a really good kind of bridge. Well, I, I didn't know it was a bridge job at the time, but it by working kind of two days a week, I was able to sustain myself, kind of pay for living costs and things like that, and give myself freedom to experiment, to go on some of these crazy retreats. Like they were very flexible. If I wanted to get like take a month off, generally that was kind of that was fine. Um, and I I was probably working with them for three years on and off and eventually got to this point where the other side projects were kind of generating enough money such that I didn't need that anymore. And, but even so, like, I remember it was quite a challenging decision to say like, hey, thank you so much for this, but I'm going to step away now. I'll help you find someone else. But this is no longer lighting me up. Like I was doing Facebook ads, that kind of thing. And every I remember opening up the, the dashboard and just like something inside me just went like oh it's just like <laughs> I, I do not i do not want to be doing this long term i was good at it and so i was fortunate in that but um i was very grateful to yeah eventually move on and to find ways to make income which initially was through coaching founders that was as lucrative and a lot more rewarding for me how does that feel giving away I mean, you could probably have done that for the next 20 years, right? Like, how did it feel just like saying no to a guaranteed and pretty easy income source? Uh, scary before I made the decision and then incredibly relieving after I made the decision. Ah, <laughs> uh, This is so <laughs> often the case. This is like the case for many people who take breaks or leave their uh-huh. jobs too. Yeah. Yeah. And um, what, um, is it something you're like, oh, I should have done this a year earlier? That's a good question. Um, I, like, like I said, I wasn't, um, I enjoyed the people that I was around, like with. So it wasn't, it wasn't so painful that I was like, no, I, I need to, like, it wasn't like a toxic work culture or anything like that. Um, and in some ways, I'm grateful for the, the buffer and the bridge it gave and kind of the freedom it gave to experiment. Like I know some people working in management consultancy, they'll, they'll build up a savings fund and that becomes like the, the buffer. Um, so I'm grateful that there was that as a safety net that I knew, right. (laughs) That I knew I could probably go back to like, if everything, if shit hit the fan, I could probably find a job doing a similar kind of thing. So there wasn't really a long-term downside. 
and 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 the upside was obviously like finding my own thing that I could make money from and really enjoy doing, um, which is is kind of happening. So I'm glad yeah, that I in, did, and and yeah, just not sure that doing it any earlier would have actually been because it might have increased the sense of scarcity. And then you know, kind of experimenting from that place where you're like, how am I going to pay rent? Is actually not very helpful either. Yeah. Definitely makes sense. There's no like right decision. And looking back, it always seems simpler and uh, mm-hmm. also at the same time counterintuitively, like inevitable that it happened when it did. Mm-hmm. Um, right. What talk to me about some of the other projects that emerged for you at the time? So you'd, you were doing coaching, um, but you're also mm-hmm. exploring this thread around like curious humans. Uh, mm. That phrase seemed to be very powerful for you. Uh, talk to me about like what that was, what it still is, um, and how that kind of kept you energized. Mm. Yeah, so I think Curious Humans for me, it emerged initially as an outlet to write about my experiences in grief. Like that's kind of, I started it around that time and writing about these things and sharing them with you know it wasn't very many people at the time and i knew most of them personally was very cathartic and and feeling seen and starting dialogues around these things was was really meaningful to me and the podcast emerged from that i actually i had the idea for a podcast about 18 months before i had the courage to actually record an episode (laughs) And I, I think one of my friends was just I think like, I was verbally harassing you in you Bali are, to launch that. <laughs> Which I, I, I appreciate you for. It's, it's a mark of a good friendship. Um, yeah. Well, I and, think, I think it, this ties back to what you were saying before is like you were very in solo mode. And that was probably yeah. a necessary phase on your journey, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, Bill Plotkin, who you introduced me to, calls it kind of like the cocooning stage, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I just sensed like hanging out with you is like, wow, he has a lot of wisdom. Like more people need to hear from Johnny. Like that, that's yeah. what I was sensing. Um, but I think also we have to go at our own speed and pace. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I really appreciate you and the others that did kind of give those nudges. I think that's generally a pattern. Like I often won't do a thing unless there's at least a few people that are like, pushing me in that direction um and and the podcast in particular i think it still is and, and has been the most creatively rewarding project that i've started um and there's something for me i mean even right now like having conversations like this um with either good friends or with people that i really look up to like bill Plotkin, like david white like these people that i consider to be mentors and having some kind of wisdom which i wasn't introduced to when i was younger so in 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 many ways i think it's like it's my attempt to um like answer the question like what does it mean to to live a good life and to be a mature like well-rounded human and i've been finding these different perspectives either through books or through maybe other podcasts and the fact that like i can read something and then email the author and be like hey do you want to come on my podcast and get like a free two-hour conversation. It's insane. Like you can, you can have conversations with theoretically almost anyone in the world. And 
because I I also love learning and because I really love having these these conversations and and the craft of asking good questions. It's been so it's been so fun and it has led to a lot of serendipitous opportunities and, and projects and things that I couldn't have predicted. But I still, even if no one listened to any of the episodes, it would have been a huge win for me. And I imagine you you feel the same as well. Yeah. It- I think a big thing for me generally has been really orienting around that. What are the things I want to do for the sake of themselves? Which can also be a trap, I think, because you can kind of just reject um, offering these things to a wider audience or even trying to make money sometimes, which I think I took really slow. Um, It's interesting, like looking back, like what you were you were kind of like always testing ideas. You were telling me, okay, you had this like how to be, a he- how to human idea, right? And you had this idea of like doing like a hundred different people, a hundred different ways of like living. And it felt interesting, like always listening to that, but it never felt like, and I think you felt this too. It never felt like the right thing. And mm-hmm you always like struggled to fully like go all in on that, which was probably, which like makes so much sense now because of what I think you have with nervous system mastery right now is just like, oh, yep, yeah, definitely. Like this is, this is Johnny's thing. It's Mm. more centered around like your story, more like genuinely powerful. Um, Talk Mm. to me about like trying to constantly like find the thing because Mm. people see people like me and you and they don't actually see the hundred other like mm. micro experiments we're like <laughs> testing with our friends should we do this or should i read a book mm. or um when we first met i was preview i showed you like my future of work mindset survey and like i had this whole like future of work framing mm. definitely wasn't my thing but like it was a necessary step to get to the things mm. Yeah, it's such a great, such a great point. And like, I remember I, I, this will give you a window into who I was at the time. I created a spreadsheet with, I think there must have been like 25, 30 different ideas for experiments, projects. There's probably a book in there as well. Courses. Oh, the experiment tracker, right? Yeah. And, and like, <laughs> I tried to rank them by like, you know, how much money could this make? How exciting did it seem? You know, these different variables, these different factors. And, I think I was really wrestling for a long time with like, what is the thing that I can go deep in? And because I felt like I was doing lots of things in like a shallow way, but the, none of them were really landing. And yeah, it's such a, it's such a like a, a fine line between committing to something uh, to kind of get to a certain point where you know if it's the thing or not versus like trusting your intuition and just like waiting and just being patient for the right thing to come along or the right invitation to come or the right piece of feedback, or connecting ideas in a, in a new way. And it's, it's probably really frustrating for listeners who might be in that position right now, and like, I don't know which direction to turn to. Um, but there is something, like, when it, when it clicks, you kind of know that it clicks. Um, and it, almost like, in my experience with, say, nervous system mastery, is that it's almost taking on a life of its own, and generating its own momentum in a way where I'm less doing it and more just like moving the direction a little bit. Um, but it's, I like, I really empathize for people who are in that kind of experimental phase. And I think the, 
the thing that helped me the most was viewing everything as an experiment and not kind of fully committing to anything necessarily and giving myself time, giving myself spaciousness, reflecting, talking to friends. Um, if something fails, like find out like, you know, what did I enjoy about that? What didn't work? Um, and just like learning about yourself and what you enjoy doing and what, um, what seems to resonate. Yeah, and it's so hard. I think especially once you create space in your life, you often unlock this hunger and this energy. And that energy, uh -huh. like we map it to this script in the modern world. It's like, we need to uh -huh. do something. We need to have uh -huh. an impact. And <laughs> it's interesting how you were unlocking this deep connectedness to your intuition, but still like using a spreadsheet to like rank the potential impact you could have. I th I think I was like pushing yeah. against your spreadsheet at the time, like very subtly. Yeah. Well, so the, the interesting thing to come out of that is, is I used my intuition, like once I saw the thing that like came out top, quote unquote, I was like, that doesn't yeah. feel right. <laughs> and so it's like, oh, interesting. <laughs> this was a tool to help me like get more clarity on my intuition for this thing. Um, yeah. And, and another interesting <laughs> inflection point, I think you definitely reached out to me was you got offered a job, which I think is a flattering title. Oh, you yeah. were offered the chief joy and well-being officer job. And I love how you've made this decision. This is a powerful yeah. frame I've adopted. You, you wrote, imagine feeling into a space of abundance. You have all the time, resources, and credibility that you need. Forget all scarcity. Where do you see yourself and what would you be working on? You sort of asked yourself this question and you decided you wouldn't be in this job. Uh, talk to me about that inflection point. Yeah. So that's actually a good, uh, that's interesting because it was my friend Danielle. Like I came to her being like, I don't know what to do. Like yeah. I'm stuck. And she guided me through that question. And like, not only like intellectually, but she was like, got me to feel in my body. Like, how does this feel? when I did that, it was really clear. And I think that in most of these inflection points, it was because I went to someone that I trusted and I was like, 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 help me, let <laughs> me figure this out. And the more that I felt comfortable doing that and less, you know, less embarrassment, less shame, less awkwardness, um, it's really helps with the decision-making. And I think things like that, like I, I don't necessarily do that now, but I think the decisions that I make they do tend to be much more just like, how does this feel in my body? And I can usually get a pretty good sense of that. Is it like tight and contracting? Like, uh, like, am I doing this because I think I should do it? Or is it like open, expansive? Like, this feels fun. This feels playful. This feels exciting. And that has become just, you know, everything from like, what am I going to eat for dinner tonight? To the bigger questions like, do I take this job? And uh, in hindsight, I'm really glad I didn't take that job. But it was, like you say, it was like a flattering thing to receive. Yeah, you described this much better in the, the essay. You described it as a visceral felt sense of realization in my chest and stomach as a goosebump-inducing wave of knowingness. <laughs> I love that. Um, that was great. Yeah, you, you have such a playful uh, use of words, which uh, I love. Um, but the interesting thing, as I was reading this again, um, and coming back to not knowing what the thing is, you write, I'm no closer to launching either, either the Curious Leaders Academy, How to uh, Human Book, or Deep Work Boot Camp. 
right? So we sort of know, we can know what the direction we're supposed to be going or or know which way we're not supposed to go, but like still landing on like what we're supposed to be doing is so hard, right? Mm -hmm. It looks Mm -hmm. so obvious looking back, but like moving Mm -hmm. forward, like what is it? What does that feel like? Um, I know for me, there's this sense of like possibility and that keeps expanding, but that also means there's like a hundred options of where to go. Yeah, that's it's a great question. Um, one one image that I played with a lot was this idea of like moving towards the mountain and just kind of taking a step in the right direction. And in the same way that you've been talking about, like learning things that don't have a practical immediate application, like yo-yoing, for example, um, the 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 there is, and I think that almost always has been a trust in that if there's a sufficient desire in me to do something or to learn something, then that in itself is, is worth pursuing. And there's a trust that someday down the line, it will come back in a way that I couldn't have foreseen. Um, so to give, to give an example, there was a, um, a retreat with a guy called Jan Chipchase in Japan that we actually, you know, I, I met up with you just before attending. And I had no practical reason to go here. Like, I didn't really know the guy. Um, it was really expensive. I didn't have all that much money at the time. And, but I was like, there's something in me that like, I really want to go to this. I don't understand why. And uh, I went and it was, a, it was an amazing experience for, for many reasons. But afterwards, we ended up connecting. We both stayed on a day. And he essentially invited me to, to run some workshops with him around emotional resilience. Um, and, this, and this was basically the opportunity that then led me to do the research, which has then led to nervous system mastery. And so had I not followed that like intuitive hit to go on this retreat, that conversation would never have happened. The workshops there would have happened and I'd probably be doing something very different today. Um, so I think it really is just this like increasing trust of my own intuition and trust in myself to keep walking <laughs> and, and, and to be okay in the, in the not knowing. I think that's a big piece. It's like being okay with the uncertainty in the liminal space and finding others who are there as well. Do you sense looking back there are different alternate paths or is there an inevitability to your current path? And that's a big question. <laughs> we might need David White quotes for this. <laughs> it reminds me of the, the Tim Evan uh, graphic with the different paths. Yeah. Um, is there an inevitability? I... I like the idea that we have, as David White would say, there is an image at the center of our lives. And in some way, if we are walking our path, then we are writing, creating from that place that speaks to that image. What that, what that actually is, I think there's many different iterations, applications. Um, but I think that And you can see in someone as well, like when they are working or creating from that place that is something like it connects with their personal story, it connects with their gifts, it maybe connects with like a wound or challenge that they went through. And it's like, that's that's their thing. And I think there could be many different iterations of that, but it comes from the same spark or the same impulse within us. And it does change as well. I I mean, like, um, 
Stephen Crape's book, which I know we've, we've both read, he's like, your dharma can, can change many times. And it's like staying in tune with that and like constantly like recalibrating to be like, does this still feel like it's, it's, it's in tune with me? Um, that, I think that's the, the constant challenge. Yeah, I think Stephen Cope talks about Robert Frost, right? He had this call to write and it led him to mm-hmm. this farm in the middle of nowhere for 10 years. But then that shifted yeah. and he sort of had a new journey. And yeah. being on a path like this, like I very much buy into that. And when people ask me like, well, what's your plan for when you retire? What are you going to do when you get to old age? It's like, it's really hard to just tell them, well, I need to uh, develop a sense of connectedness with my body so I can pay attention to when my dharma shifts. (laughs) (laughs) But have you tried saying that? (laughs) How does that end? (laughs) I think I will experiment. I think that just came up right now in conversation, (laughs) but that's really the answer. And Mm -hmm. the more, it's so weird. Like the more you learn to listen to this and like things sort of just work out or like you don't fall into utter failure. You're like your life doesn't fall apart. Mm-hmm. You can, you can really reach this state where like you do have the sense that things are going to work out. Mm-hmm. Um, and that mm-hmm. is so hard. Like if there is one thing I wish I could like bottle up, it's that feeling. Mm-hmm. Uh, and like just let uh, people sample it for like 10 minutes but uh, i think the truth is you probably have to go through your years long journey to get there um like do you have a sense of what i'm talking about like that bottled up feeling like uh, do you have that sense too yeah i i love the way you put that and for me it's kind of I think Charles Eisenstein writes about this really beautifully, but it's this idea of like trusting in life and trusting in ourselves to navigate life and not micromanaging every single kind of possible future scenario. Um, And I think that trust comes from, um, it comes from a series of experiences when you have trusted and when things have, you know, worked out in some cases better than you could have imagined. Uh, I remember when... Kelly, like my, my now wife and I uh, first met, um, she was in America and there was this sense of, and she was with another, another partner at the time. And I, I made a decision at the, at the time of like, I, like, I just trust that like, if this is, if this connection is meant to unfold, then it will. And I don't need to force it or figure out some plan of how it's going to happen. There was just this like trust, I guess. And the more that I can lean into that and like sip from that bottle um, and, and notice when I'm in the forgetting, right? Like the times where let's say like the course launch is coming up soon and I notice myself in this like semi-frantic mode of like, must do this, must do this, must do this. and like trying to manage everything. And I was like, oh, that's not helping. Like I'm just like forcing and pushing as opposed to trusting in myself and trusting that like things will flow and things will unfold. And I'm, I still like, I catch myself in so many different ways, but it, yeah. it does come back to that like, that ease. It's like, ah, like it's, it's going to be okay. <laughs> See that? That's perfect for your course too. Um, if anything doesn't go well, you can just be like, well, this is a good opportunity to practice emotional resilience. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. 
Right, yeah, and, and um, don't be a hypocrite. <laughs> so, yeah, like, wait for the opportunities to emerge, but mm-hmm. you did, once she left her partner, book a flight to a snowy place in the middle of a pandemic. Like, how, how does that happen? Well, um, <laughs> I, was, I was visiting a friend, and we had, we had made an agreement via email that if we were with, within... 250 miles of each other that we would meet up like as friends and so I was in Colorado she was in Lake Tahoe I sent her an email she later said that Colorado was actually like 500 miles away (laughs) she like chose to ignore that bit um so after staying with friends here in Colorado uh, I flew to Lake Tahoe to just meet as friends and just like be together uh and that's when the connection really unfolded and and then I might as well just tell the whole story uh, I, th- I then went back to Bali. We kind of were like semi together. And then I flew to Mexico for a workshop on emotional resilience, which was then canceled the day that I landed because of COVID. And so I called her up and said, uh, hey, like, I think the borders might be about to close. Can I just come and stay for like a week or two while this, this quarantine thing blows over? <laughs> and, and she was like, sure, okay. <laughs> and so I did. And then, and then COVID happened. And then... Yeah, we haven't really left each other's side since then. Um, and so that's just another example of like, had I not been in Mexico, like I might have been in Bali for the whole pandemic and we probably wouldn't have, yeah, everything would have been very different. Yeah, it seems like retreats and uh, uh, workshops have shaped a lot of your path they have. over the last year. Yeah, yeah so, so I think that points to something else, which I think we're both very good at in certain ways, which is like investing in serendipity. And, and I think you like not know, you know, placing lots of like small bets that feel aligned and you don't know which one's going to pay off. But if you like kind of do this enough and you, you put uh, balls in the serendipity jar, eventually things will start coming back to you. And that might be, you know, being generous, like helping out a friend. It might be going to retreat, like investing in serendipity when you're in this lost phase of the pathless path it will eventually come back to you. Yeah. And that is so hard for people to understand. Like, Leaving a job, we sense that the problem to be solved is finding paid work or finding another job. And that is a practical reality at a certain point. Mm-hmm. But also you need to invest in actually building a life because you may yeah. discover that your life was not much more than just your job, yeah. uh, which I think mm-hmm. was the case for me. And a lot of what I was doing, living in different countries, meeting up with people like you, like you mentioned offhand the first time we met, I'm going, I might go to Bali. I'm like, keep me posted. I'll come. Um, You probably didn't expect like I'll come and I will literally like definitely come. But um, yeah, investing in those experiences, I didn't know what to expect. You brought a friend, you inspired a friend Jay to come with you and like we've all bonded. Now we're all in these cross- um, mm-hmm. country marriages. So we have that, <laughs> that shared bond. Um, and yeah, it, there's, it's so crazy because like so many of the things I'm doing now were like seeds planted in things that I couldn't have predicted or planned. Right. And that's the whole point uh-huh. of like this pathless path idea, but like just learning to trust that like there is wisdom to be found in things that can't be quantified, measured, or, mm-hmm. um, planned is like so powerful and i i sense there's this huge arbitrage opportunity which i was kind of writing about this previous week which is that like this exists and like nobody's paying attention 
Um, so like take advantage of these opportunities because you can still like make a living, get a part-time job, get <laughs> remote work and <laughs> make your life better at the same time. It's, it's <laughs> pretty wild. Yeah, I mean, especially say if you're earning dollars and living somewhere like Bali, especially the way the dollar is right now, you can you can make that go a long way. Um, but I, I think the other thing I wanted to mention related to that is is that the the work or the job that you think you want right after leaving a job is is probably different to what you might pursue after six months, a year of exploring yourself. Like something that I notice in startup founders that I coached is, is some of them will, they'll kind of explore themselves to the extent where they realize that the impulse to, to do the startup was to like prove something to their dad or to, it was coming from this place of like fear or pain. And actually they realized that they didn't want to do the startup. And so they find a way to exit or to sell, or to sell it and then pursue something else. And, and I think that the more that we unlearn these scripts, the more the types of things that we're drawn to changes. And so making that commitment too early before you've done any kind of deep introspection or whatever that looks like for you um, is probably going to be a mistake because you'll just end up recreating the same conditions that you had in the shit in the, in the job, whatever it was, but in a different guise. It's like, um, like Kelly talks about like building a different cage for yourself. Yeah. Um, so I think giving yeah. yourself that spaciousness is, is super important. Yeah, I call these hustle traps, which are like mm-hmm, mm-hmm. scripts that sort of disguise themselves as freedom scripts, but are actually just extensions of the, the default path world. Like right. leaving tech to start a startup is like just an extension of default path world. And mm-hmm. um, the, it's really hard to unpair from that. But over and yeah. over again, like so many people I've interviewed on this podcast and Laura LeCompe recently, she uh-huh. talked about like leaving Google to do a startup. And then once she decided to not pursue that, freelance a little bit, opened up a little space, she started writing and that that led to like her curiosity and like everything um, that opened up after that. And it's, it, it's just over and over again. It's, mm-hmm. it's sort of predictable at this point. It's kind of crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, like what sort of, wisdom do you try to convey to others when they reach out to you like what what do you tell startup founders um in this scenario when they're like i need to do another startup or like i need to Hmm. find my next thing like how do you deal with that i've i very much stopped giving any kind of advice (laughs) because advice is usually just like my projection in disguise and it's yeah um, even if it is right for someone, like you said earlier, people need to experience things and feel things for themselves. So I think if I'm, you know, if I'm coaching someone or guiding someone through a situation like this, which, um, <clears throat> excuse me, which I actually have been recently, there's uh, one guy that I'm working with that's considering selling a startup to like go pursue a creative career, and it's just helping to uh, ask different questions than questions that might have arisen normally and to give weight to other ways of being so an example is like making more embodied decisions and weighing that against the you know maybe very rational pros and cons of taking path a or path b 
Um, I also really like the the idea of like regret minimization of like, can you um, like if if you were to look back in fifty years time, which way would you regret the least, and to what extent is let's say there's a scary decision and like a safe option, like can you recover from the scary option in like three to six months and be in roughly the same place as you are today? Like to what degree is the decision reversible? And if it is fairly reversible, then, and you're tempted, then you probably haven't got that much to lose by, by going. Yeah. If it's something that is like a, like a binary, like one, like a divorce or something, um, then that is worth kind of approaching with more caution, I think. Yeah. And I think, People will often say things to me like, oh, don't you think you shouldn't give this advice? Don't you think this is crazy? It's like, the reality is the people who end up taking unconventional paths have a certain sort of like, I have to do this. Yeah, yeah, um, right. And maybe that's just the psychological wiring. Maybe that's just like all of us born like this and then just like basically just spending years uh, doing other stuff and then remembering mm-hmm. we had that. Mm-hmm. But yeah, over and over again, it's like, I have to do this. Like, yeah, that's and, ultimately and like, what it comes down to. It's like an increased sensitivity to the pain of not doing it. It's like when you get to the yeah. point where you wake up and you, the thought of going into work to do your job, like fills you with dread and fear and your body's like, Ugh. like th- that's when people make it because they, they can't not do it. Like no matter how scary not knowing is, the idea of going into another day of that is unfathomable. So may, it, maybe it looks brave on the outside, but in many ways, I think people are just doing what, what feels best. And, and that's what a lot of it comes down to. It's like, what, you know, what will make you feel good? What feels good in this moment? Let's talk a little bit about nervous system mastery. So I think I saw some of the early frameworks um, you uh, were developing around this, and it's been really cool to see it evolve. Um, and not surprising that so many people are interested because um, I think you've just built a lot of trust and uh, credibility in this space. But talk to me about um, what that is turning into and how that's kind of leading the next chapter of your journey. Mm. Yeah, sure. So the the inception of this was towards the end of last year, I think I, I shared a tweet or something. And this is a good example of like, this was an experiment that I, that I ran. I like <clears throat> set a tweet. Like, I'm thinking about doing a five-week course about the nervous system. Uh, you, you know, would anyone be interested? And a bunch of people replied and our friend Michael said like, how can I give you money for this? Like, let me, let me pay you for this. <laughs> and so I then created a, like a payment link, Stripe link there and then and sent it to him. And he sent me money and, and that was like, wow, feedback, like, Love wow, that. There's, there's, there's something here. And that then continued to stoke my fire of like creating the curriculum and getting into like creation mode to build this thing that I almost promised online to, to deliver. And the first cohort went really well. I had a ton of feedback. I've now basically redesigned the entire curriculum from scratch, which, which Angie's actually been really helpful in giving me feedback on. And it's it's really um, it's converging in this idea of how do you how do you rise out of reactivity and how do you use your biology use your physiology to cultivate calm resilience these things and it's it's my attempt to distill a lot of what I've learned in in these retreats and these trainings and practices that have helped me in a way that is hopefully accessible and backed by various studies and, and research and things that I've been like nerding out on. 
but it's it's really fun. And what I what I love about it is it, it's kind of combining my my passion for teaching and for sharing and for kind of writing about this kind of thing with um, engaging with other friends and people who are curious about this. And so I'm almost viewing it as like I'm inviting a bunch of people into the space. We're all going to explore questions together. They're going to sh- add perspectives, share stories, like help improve this curriculum, and it's just going to improve a little bit more every time that I do it. Um, and so it's been really fun and also really gratifying to both like make some money from this as well has, has felt really good and think about like how, to, how do you craft a really compelling learning experience and, and, and how do I go from just sharing information, which I think I did quite a lot in the first cohort, which is good, to creating an experience where people get to embody this knowledge in, in deeper ways and, and so it really lands and sticks. and. It's such an interesting challenge for me. Like, I just love that. Like, like, how do you share something so that it really lands? And how do you use stories? And um, so it, it is like really lighting me up in in lots of different ways. I love that. I'm so I'm so pumped for this for you. I think uh, it's so cool when people find like the thing, and you're also able to make money from it. Like I yeah. am of the belief, which I don't know if you can make money from everything you absolutely mm-hmm. love doing. But sometimes, yeah, totally. like I think I experienced this in my book, like more and more people have bought it than I expected yeah. this year. It's sort of like this permission slip yeah. uh, from the universe and people to say, keep going. Yeah. We want you to do this. Um, <laughs> are you experiencing a similar thing with nervous system mastery? It's like there a community of people are basically endowing a professorship yeah. for you and saying like, Johnny, <laughs> yes, keep going. <laughs> my, my ego loves to hear that. Um, yeah, it, it does. It feels really great. And both in the sense of the kind of like keep going and here are more people that are going to help to make it better. And here are more people that I you know, want to spend time with and want to learn from myself. And it, it does feel like it's, like I mentioned earlier, that it's kind of taking on a life of its own. And I've reached a point recently where I'm like beyond my own capacity and I've had to bring in other people and kind of learn on the fly, like how to build a small team around this because there's more that I want to do than I can like possibly do on my own. And so now that um, I have a little bit more resources to kind of do that, I can feel it. Uh, I can feel like wanting to expand and wanting to grow. And I love it because it's basically just me getting paid to continue learning and researching and sharing stuff that I'm really fascinated by. And so it's like, I'm, I'm like, like what? <laughs> like, this, is, this is so great. <laughs> You've unlocked cheap mode. Um, cheap mode, yeah. <laughs> what? Maybe talk to us about some of the, like, what is the overarching framework of like how you're thinking Uh about this course now? Uh Sure. So I actually gave a talk about this um, last weekend in Asheville. Uh, It's it's kind of revolving around that the central thesis or framework is this idea of rising out of reactivity. And the rise stands for reactivity is the R. I stands for interoception, which is our ability to sense, track, and feel our internal landscape, and our sensations, our emotions. Um, the S stands for self-regulation, which is 
how do we up or downregulate our nervous system as we, as we want. And then the E is emotional mastery. And that is basically how can we come into a healthy relationship to our emotions where we're not repressing, we're not sharing them in kinked ways, but we're allowing them to flow naturally. And so that's kind of like roughly the week by week flow of the curriculum. And then there's a piece around environment design and, and habits and routines at the end as well. Um, so it, it's, it's still an experiment. Like this is the first time that I'm going to be sharing this with a group of people. I imagine I will learn a lot and there'll be feedback in terms of uh, the, the delivery. But I think the, the core around how do you increase the space between the stimulus and the response and how do you notice in your body the times when you're kind of going into reactivity or when anger might be there or when shame might be there and, and not making decisions from that place, but like hitting pause and doing something to, to regulate yourself to come back down to what's known as like ventral vagal safety, which is like our sense of groundedness, our sense of connection. And then, and then making decisions once we're feeling more like ourselves and less reactive. So that's kind of the, the core of it. And I think the, um, it's been super interesting to see like teachers joining, startup founders, a firefighter, therapists, coaches, like a, a really wide spectrum of, of people are joining. And I, I'm, I'm curious to get different perspectives on this as well, because the nervous system touches so many different things. Um, and I've done my best to research, but there's obviously a lot that I, I still don't know. I had a great conversation with a guy, Grimhood, who just shared this download of, of his research on supplements and, and getting sunlight. And, and I'm like, wow, there's still so much to learn here. So I'm, I'm doing my best to distill what is most practical and most helpful in the short term, whilst also kind of paving a path for people hopefully to dive into this work in a deeper way, whether that's through one-on-one -on -one somatic experiencing, maybe a kind of one-on-one -on -one breath work or, or something that allows them to go even deeper. This is like a, a kind of nervous system literacy where you'll know, you'll have the tools to ground yourself in any situation, to, to understand what's going on through the lens of polyvagal theory, and hopefully begin going down that path in, uh, in your own way. Yeah, have you found there are any certain practices that are really powerful for people in terms of like, oh, now I get a different way of sort of seeing how my body works? Um... Yeah, two, two things come to mind. One is, is understanding the core concepts of what's known as polyvagal theory. And it's this idea that our nervous system has three branches. There's the sympathetic that most people have heard of. And then there's two branches in the parasympathetic. One is called ventral, one is called dorsal. And it, in any time, our body can be in one or more of these states. And learning to recognize what state you're in can be really helpful. So if someone's stuck in sympathetic they might be angry they might be anxious they might be um analyzing things whatever it is and then there are certain tools say using the breath that can help you to kind of downshift into a place of safety um, and then on the dorsal side that's like when we're in collapse or depression or or shutdown or shame and like firstly recognizing how that feels in the body being like oh like my body is in dorsal right now and then having a, a, like a toolkit to then come back into ventral from there. That's one thing. And then the second, I think, is like one aha moment for a lot of people is realizing how connected the way that we breathe is to our state. 
And so the breath is almost like a remote control for the nervous system. And so if you, if you want to be more active and more activated, instead of drinking a coffee, you can do something like bellows breath or, or breath of fire. And it will, it will stimulate you and you'll feel more alert and more active. And then the reverse is true if you do something like alternate nostril breathing or 478 breathing. That will have an immediate effect on your, on your endocrine system, which then shifts your biology, which then shifts the thoughts and the feelings that you're having. And so I think a lot of people have been you know, trying to maybe like reframe situations or use their mind to overcome like overthinking, but actually kind of intervening using the body. There's many other different things that you can do as well, but kind of starting with the physiology to get to a certain state is often a lot, a lot more efficient at feeling the way that we want to feel. That's powerful. It, so you planted uh, a lot of curiosity triggers right there. So people are probably <laughs> like, what is he talking about? 470 bellows? <laughs> what it, maybe give us one example. Like what is bellows breath or box breathing? Okay. Yeah. So um, bellows breathing is, uh, in, in the yogic world, it's called kapalabhati. And it's basically a series of rapid exhales through the nose and then a full inhale. And it's kind of like a, a light version of, of Wim Hof. And um, I mean, I could, I could demo it now briefly. Go it looks like... It. And then breathe in. Hold at the top. And then you let go. And normally doing like 30 exhales and then um, doing that for two, like two rounds or three rounds is, is very activating and you'll feel this like aliveness and this energy in your body. Um, and that, that's an example. <laughs> yeah, this is so powerful. I, I sense this as part of this broader shift of like, we went through like this analytical dark age of human experience and uh we're sort of saying oh these human bodies are actually pretty powerful and you're you're on a journey of discovering all these portals um yeah. and experiencing some of these things i think like box breathing has been super powerful for me of uh mm -hmm. calming down my body when i'm like anxious or stressed about something it's like, oh, let me just reprogram that real quick and I can get back to like a more level-headed way to yeah. then start making decisions and things like that. Yeah, totally. And I, I love that. And I think related to that is a deeper sense of confidence to go into things that feel scary because you know that you have the tools to calm down and regulate afterwards. Um, so things like the other thing that I'll do sometimes is... Um, uh, I have like a, like a belly stone where lying on my back and just having the stone on my belly and just breathing into that and then sighing is incredibly like even if I'm anxious or worried about something like doing that for a few minutes, I'll instantly feel better. And it's like, I know that I can do that. Um, you know, like any, any time basically. So it does give this sense of confidence and there's less fear of getting stuck in any of these place or, or say going to drugs or substances to try and like artificially regulate when you can just do it naturally through something like the breath or or things like forward folds can be very calming um even like relaxing your gaze our eyes are part of our nervous system and so if we just kind of like relax our gaze or look at a wide horizon there'll often be a sigh as well and that's associated with like relaxing like 
And it's like, ah, like, okay, like I feel I'm back in my body. I'm like back here again. Wow, so much. We're getting real uh, in-depth here. So people are going to have to take the course if they, if they want to uh, really get a map for these. Um, I don't know if we'll be able to do it justice. Otherwise, we'll have to go a few more hours here. But um, yeah, what an interesting thing I was thinking about is like another psychotechnology for like mastering your nervous system is basically just living in different places in different countries. Like, <laughs> I've had, like, scooters stolen. I've gotten um, parasites and been in the hospital with fevers and seen enormous spiders in different countries and uh, all, all sorts of different experiences, some of them uh, living with you in different countries as well. So um, <laughs> like, those have been good tests uh, for my resilience and enabling me to <laughs> take more risks and do different things in my life. <laughs> Yeah, I like that. And you've, you've survived. Um, and yeah, and, and I think that's a point around doing things to like push our capacity a little bit. There's this idea of like the window of tolerance and finding things which are at our edge or putting ourselves in environments where we might get a scooter stolen or whatever it is and learning that we can, you know, make it through the other side. Well, like we do grow from that. Uh, there is this like anti-fragility that gets cultivated. Awesome. So recently, Lex Friedman released a seven and a half hour podcast with Balaji uh, Srinivasan. Um, I am not are, going are to extend to, are you, this. Are we trying to beat this? <laughs> <laughs> we probably could, but I don't. I think we needed more nervous system prep um, before this. But um, yeah, I I do want to wrap. Um, maybe we'll hopefully we'll have more conversations like this in the future. But. Uh-huh. Um, wanted to do a few rapid fire questions. One of which I've been asking people is, do you have a path role model? Mm. David White. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's probably one of mine. Flash. Um, there's a guy that I interviewed recently called Aaron Alexander, who mm. um, I've been really enjoying his podcast and his approach to sharing like a lot of the science. It's more movement based, but uh, his like goofiness and playfulness um has like resonated with me and it's like inspiring me to be a little bit even more goofy uh, what that looks like i don't you know if you could go back to yourself at the end of high school um and plant a seed in your mind maybe a question a phrase um you're not going to mess with the timeline too much you're not going to like change the trajectory uh-huh. but what um what thought phrase or question might you incept in your High school self. Um, trust yourself and trust life. Love that. This might be a longer answer, something I wanted to ask, but what does commitment mean for you right now? If commitment means a intentional forcing function for greater freedom and depth. Commitment is allowing me in my work and in my relationships to access a more nourishing depth, which I've been craving. Yeah. And I mean, just in a practical standpoint, are you, are you a little scared that you just signed a year-long lease? I mean, I've just legally got married, signed a year-long lease, and like committed to a work path <laughs> in the space of a <laughs> month or two. Uh, you know what? It, it actually feels incredibly liberating knowing that like oh, this I love that. is a sense of home it's like an anchor and a base 
for for everything. Like even being away from a week, I was like, I miss home. I miss like I miss Boulder. I miss the people. So yeah, it's it's been. I, I'm, I do miss the sea, but I know I can I can get there pretty easily. So it's been great. Yeah, Angie and I were experiencing that this summer too for the first time for us where it's like we we miss Austin. We want to go back there. We want to see like some of the relationships mm-hmm. we've started and continue to mm-hmm. grow them. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's I think a lot of people on paths like ours do end up at a point like this. I imagine also there will be additional adventures in our future. Um that no. part of you sort of never dies. Um <laughs> But it's great to shift in between seasons, I think, and yeah, um, yeah. shift between these different modes. And I think this is one of the greatest possibilities and opportunities of a path like this to yeah. um, have the range of options and to flow be- between them. Yeah. Uh, any final thoughts you want to uh, share with us, Johnny? Well, just on that, I think this relates to kind of the idea of a path of path of like having an anchor, I think can create an increased sense of safety, which allows for greater confidence in the way that we experiment. Um, and so finding out what that is for you and, and cultivating that sense of home in yourself first and foremost as well, which I think ties into the trust piece. But yeah, I would just encourage any listeners to keep experimenting and, and really not lose that mindset like even when it feels like you know for either of us i think we're we're very much still always experimenting and still looking to learn and i think like if i thought of myself as an expert right now i think that would not bode well for for the future of, of this course i think i still very much see myself as a voracious learner and staying true to that mindset i think is is very helpful in in all areas of life yeah, it's been great. We're in this group chat and it's a really nice space where we can be like, uh, are you guys struggling with your relationships and money too? And then we can all just be like, oh yeah, of course, we're all dealing with this. And like, like, are you guys struggling with figuring out how to make decisions? Oh yeah, of course. Um, but yeah, it's it's been such a pleasure. Like I couldn't possibly capture... Um, how meaningful your friendship has been to yeah. to me on this path it's uh it's meant so much and i think like i'm not here today um finding some of the things i love and feeling so good about my path without meeting yeah. you along the way and yeah man i just really sure. appreciate you and um it's been uh it's been great traveling this path with you Thank you. That that means a lot. And it is entirely mutual. Like I've really enjoyed, I feel like you're an amazing sparring partner in so many ways. And it's it's been beautiful to see us both like landing in a similar, at least similar country. And um, I'm excited for the new depths that I think will come now that we're both moving into new chapters. So I, I appreciate you too as a friend and a brother. Awesome. Keep going, Johnny. Um, rooting <laughs> for you. Nervous nervous system mastery, nsmastery.com. I will link up to that. Anywhere else you want to point people? Uh just just on Twitter, say hi. Um Johnny Miller and the eyes with a one. Uh yeah, join the conversations. Awesome. Thank you so much. All right, thank you. 
Thank you for listening to The Pathless Path. I love having these conversations. And if you want to support me, you can rate, review, or subscribe on your favorite podcast app. You can also follow me on YouTube, where I post all the video interviews of this podcast as well. Finally, you can always support me by buying my book, The Pathless Path. It's a book I'm really proud of and has most of my best thinking and probably my best writing in it. And you can get it for less than 20 bucks. So grab that. It's in the show notes. And thank you for listening. Hey all, thanks for listening to the episode. I really appreciate the support and especially always love when people reach out letting me know what they think about the specific episodes. If you want to go deeper into Pathless Path World, you can of course check out my book. It's sold. It's going to hit 50,000 soon. I think by the time you're hearing this, it will probably have already sold 50,000, which is mind-blowing. But I continue all the support of people that buy and share the book. If you want to meet others on Pathless Paths, I have a community, which you can find at pathlesspath.com membership, and you can join and meet hundreds of others around the world trying to make sense of weird paths and meeting others along the way. Thank you so much for listening. Hope you have a good day.